Well, welcome again to Cornerstone, if you're new. This week is uh, Bring a Friend Day or kind of a Newcomer Day, so we tried to make sure we invited people. And if you're here, this is your first time, thank you for coming. Thank you for making the uh, time to be here. We're grateful that that you took a chance on us, and we pray that uh, God moves in your heart today. Now, they say that, you know, over dinner, you're never supposed to talk about what two topics— religion and politics. So it's a good thing we made our newcomer day about religion and politics. Now, we're starting a new series called No Fear November. It's just three weeks, uh, so you'll only be offended for three weeks, I promise you. Isn't that great? Uh, But I want you to know right off the bat, uh, I'm not going to be pushing my political agenda on you. I I certainly have voted in the past, and if you want to know my voting record, let's get coffee, let's get lunch, let's go out and have a good conversation. Uh, But the purpose of this series is not to move you from one political party to another. It is not to move you to go out and vote for a certain candidate. It is to give us a God-centered perspective on voting, on the election, on kind of uh, politics. And so I hope that you'll, you'll take that away with you. And there's a chance, there's a chance you might get offended. But ultimately, I hope that you'll be encouraged. And if you are offended, it's by something in God's word. But I hope you'll be encouraged and I hope you'll be challenged as we go through this series. Uh, so for in order for me to do that with my words, I need to say a prayer and ask God to help me with that. So let's say a prayer here. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. These are your words in the scripture, and help me to give them wisely and accurately to your people. I pray for courage, Father. I pray for courage for me, that I would speak your words, that I would speak truth. I pray for courage for everyone in this room, that they would hear, they would open their hearts and their minds and listen to what you have to say to them today, no matter what that is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. So there you go. Fear in politics is nothing new. Now, I just saw this for like the first time, uh, like last week, and I was just, like, I, I laughed. I was kind of in shock. I'd never seen this ad. I know many of you have seen it before, maybe in college, or you were around when it came out. Uh, I don't mean that to be insulting at all. That's fine with me. Uh, This ad came out in the 1964 presidential election. It was Democrat Lyndon Johnson. He was running this ad against Republican Barry Goldwater. 
As you can tell, it's kind of terrifying. The message is pretty simple. If you vote for that other guy, nuclear warfare, little girls with daisies are going to die. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty intense message. Fear is nothing new in politics. This is one of the most famous ads for kind of being fear-based. And to be absolutely fair, there are other ads just like this on the other side of the aisle. Reagan uh, ran a bear one against the Soviet Union. So just YouTube bear Ronald Reagan and you can watch that at home. Now fear actually works. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like instead of voting for candidates, we're now voting against candidates. That our vote is more about who we don't want, who we're afraid of, the agendas that we don't like, than something that we actually believe in. I want you to know one thing from this, hopefully from this sermon series, from today's message, is that you don't have to be afraid anymore. It's good news. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to to feel fear welling up inside of you. For this service, we're reading a portion of the book of Philippians. Now, Philippians is a letter to an early Christian church. And a man named Paul, who was uh, one of the leaders of that early Christian church, we called him an apostle, he wrote this letter. And he wrote it to a church that was going through a variety of things, but we're going to only look at a small portion of the letter. One of my favorite passages, maybe if you even don't go to church very often, you might have heard this passage. And uh, I encourage you to take this passage, take it to heart. But I love how it begins in chapter 4, verse 6, the portion that I've selected. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now that covers a wide variety of things not to be anxious about. It doesn't matter your situation. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter the political season. You don't have to be anxious. Now the question is, is Paul qualified to say something like this? I believe Paul has every right to say don't be anxious about anything because he could be anxious about everything. Now, when Paul is writing this letter, so he actually had to to write it out, he's not sitting on Cape Cod. He's not texting on his phone this letter. It's not a comfy location where he is writing this letter from. He's actually imprisoned. He's under house arrest. There are guards standing outside of his door. He is a man who has had his freedom stripped from him. And yet somehow he can still say, be anxious about nothing. Maybe you're thinking, well, you know, maybe he doesn't have the same presidential candidates as we do. Well, if you look back into that time period, the emperor at that time is a man named Nero. Now, Nero is not known for being elected by the people for the people. Nero is an evil emperor. He is a dictator. And he's famous for burning half of Rome. That's right. He he put it up in torch, not for a good reason, but so that he could expand his palace complex. And when the people of Rome came to him and said, how dare you do this? You burnt down our city. You know who he blamed it on? He blamed it on the Christians. He said they did it. 
And so he began to round up the Christians, and he put them to death. He would use them at night to light his palace. He would burn them. He would use them to light his races. It's pretty awful stuff. He was a pretty bad president. But Paul still says, don't be anxious about anything. I have the worst of emperors that I'm writing this from. Maybe I could lose my life, but don't be anxious about anything. In fact, he actually says, not only are we not to be anxious, but we can rejoice. We can be happy. Now, we didn't read it, but if you look a few verses earlier in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Saying the word rejoice twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. In other words, you can be happy. You can be filled with God's joy. You can be filled with God's contentment. It doesn't matter who's in charge in our kind of governmental uh, level. It matters that God is giving you joy and that God is in charge. So my question is, what does Paul know? What's the message that he's trying to write his audience at this early church in the town of Philippi. Well, I think Paul knows this, and he, and he gives this message to us, that fear leads to one of two responses, a flight response or a fight response. Fear leads to a flight or fight response. Now, we're looking at the kind of the ending of Paul's letter. So uh, these letters that Paul would write had beginnings, middles, and ends. And in this kind of ending conclusion, ending summary, Paul is emphasizing two things. First, he's emphasizing steadfastness and unity. And what is the opposite of steadfastness? It is running away. And what is the opposite of unity? It is fighting. See, Paul is is telling the people in their circumstance, don't run away from your issues, don't run away from your problems, don't run away from this early church, and certainly don't fight in this early church. Don't be bickering. And we don't really know what the situation was, whether they were afraid of Nero or there was some other local circumstance. We know a little bit, which I'll get into, but we don't know kind of the big reason. But we can look at each one of these responses and apply them to our situation, to what we're going through in our lives. And that we're not to uh, be leading ourselves and going into this fall season out of a frightful heart feeling because that causes a flight or fight response. So first, we're going to look at flight. Now, maybe some of you, uh, this election, maybe some of you are very content Uh, But some of you perhaps are thinking about renouncing your citizenship and moving to Canada. (laughs) I'm sure people are doing that at this time. In his book, The Voting Booth by Sky Jatani, I recommended that on the website. Please check it out. It's a great book. Uh, But Sky, he, he details this historic response by Christians, that historically Christians have run away in times of conflict, in times of uh, kind of political upheaval, especially in our country. Now, a hundred years ago, uh, in our country, kind of globally, two worldviews were coming to prominence. In other words, two ways to kind of look at life. 
And these two views really didn't need God. In fact, we're almost against God. The two views are Darwinism and communism. And both these views said we don't need God in our lives. Communism uh, promotes a philosophy of atheism. In other words, God doesn't need to be here. There's no reason for God. And Darwinism uses scientific explanation to kind of rule out God. And so Christians as a whole were kind of feeling under the pressure, under the pressure in the, in the U.S. And so they, they kind of went to court. And in 1925, a high school teacher in Tennessee was charged with teaching evolution. So today, you might be charged for teaching creationism in the public school, but in that time, you were charged for teaching evolution. And that's where we get the Scopes Monkey Trial. You can go home and you can Google that if you're really interested. The truth is, Christians won this case. We won it. We, we got everything that we wanted. But in the process, we actually lost our reputation And because we felt like the culture no longer wanted us, we began to retreat. Christians began to pull out of culture, pull out of society, and do things in kind of Christian conclaves. And that's why we get things like uh, Christian colleges, Moody, Liberty, other ones uh, that uh, that kind of came out of this movement. We get Christian publishers that publish Christian books, Christian ideas that don't have atheism, that don't have evolution. We get Christian movies. We get Christian music. We get Christian amusement parks. We get Christian television stations. We get Christian conferences, and we get Christian youth groups. The youth group idea where we kind of have all of our youth kids together was because we don't want to be infiltrated by those people that believe something different than us. See, the idea is simple. Christians are called to be good, right? Christians are called to be pure. And if the world is full of impurity, if the world is full of evilness, then we need to separate ourselves from that impurity. We need to separate ourselves from that sin. Sin is disobedience to God. And if the world is disobeying God, well, we certainly don't want to take part in the world, so we're going to remove ourselves from that disobedience. And so Christians took flight. How might you be taking flight this election year, taking flight this season? Maybe you're throwing up your hands and you're saying, I am done with it. Or maybe it's a little bit more subliminal. You're saying, well, I'm not going to talk to my coworkers. I'm not going to talk to my friends that I know are on the opposite side of the political aisle. Or I'm going to click unfriend them on Facebook I've actually done that. But the problem with this response is twofold. One, it ignores the call to love those that disagree with us. When we separate from those that, that Jesus has called us to, uh, to make friends with, to, to share the love of Christ, we can no longer do that because we're separated from them. And second, it ignores the root cause. See, uh, the root cause of evil is not out there. The root cause of evil is not out in the world. It's right here. It's in the heart. 
So no, so no matter how much we separate ourselves from people we disagree with, from impurity in the world, we're never going to fix the problem because the impurity is inside our own hearts. That's where the brokenness is. The more we take flight, the more we disobey Jesus' command to love our neighbors. And what does Paul challenge his audience when they're tempted to take flight? In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Stand firm in the Lord. Don't run away. Don't run away from those issues in your early church. Stand firm. And so in our culture, we're called to stand firm as well. Now, what happened when we pulled out, when Christians pulled out of culture, uh, what happened was the sexual revolution, 1960s. We get things like Woodstock. We get the, the uh, prevalence of the idea that if you just love each other, it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. This is where these ideas really start to grow. And then in 1973, Roe v. Wade happened. And abortion was really uh, made illegal in a a number, number of significant, significant ways. And that's when we as Christians said, oh, well, I don't know if it was just so good an idea that we left culture. Because all of these bad things are now happening. They're now legal. And so we came back in. But we came back in swinging. We came back in fighting. And this leads me to the second response that fear produces in our hearts. It's conflict, attacking, going on the aggressive. Now, Christians came back to wage war through elections, through court decisions, through politics, through any political means necessary. This is why, according to Amy Black, she's a professor, a political science professor at Wheaton. She says three-fourths of Christians vote Republican and two-thirds of non-Christians vote Democrat. So people that don't believe in Jesus, two-thirds Democrat, three-fourths of Christians Republican. And this is where we get things like the religious right or uh, the uh, focus on the family. An institution targeting that. We get the moral majority. Maybe you've heard that term in the news. The evangelical voting block. This is where we get that. This is where we can understand that through this view that we came back fighting. The question is, with all this fighting, with all this challenging, has anything really improved? Has our relationship with culture gotten better? Or gotten worse. If the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the early Christians and he didn't approve of fighting inside the church, why would we assume that he would approve of fighting outside the church? Now, Paul is writing, if you look at verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, he says this. He is pleading. He's pleading with two women to stop fighting. He says, I plead with you, Iodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what they were bickering about, but these were two women of reputation, of standing in the early church, and they were fighting with each other And it was doing two things. It was hurting the church, and it was hurting the gospel message. These people had been co-workers in the cause of the gospel, 
But now they're actually damaging the church. They're damaging their own reputation. And more importantly, they're damaging the reputation of Jesus Christ because they're in conflict. They're at war. Now, I don't want to point the finger at any of you. That is not my intention tonight. I'm going to point the finger at myself because I'm guilty of both these responses. I am guilty of a flight response, and I am guilty of a fight response. Now, I was raised homeschooled. I, was, uh, I grew up in a Christian household, and I was raised homeschooled. And one of the reasons my parents chose to make that decision uh, for me was because they didn't want me to learn things like evolution. They didn't want me to kind of be influenced by secular thought. And that's fine. Uh, you know, we make that decision too. That's, that's totally fine. But the problem was... I viewed myself as better than those public schoolers. <laughs> I looked down on them. Now, I didn't think I was smarter than them or that I would get better test scores than them, but I thought I was more polite. I thought I was kinder. I thought I was better, that I, I acted, uh, that, I, that I honored God with how I used my time, with how I acted, and altogether I looked down on them. I didn't have any non-Christian friends growing up because we were removed. We were in a Christian subculture. And I'm not apologizing for anyone else, but I am apologizing for myself. If you're here and you've been wounded by people like me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to act that way to hurt you. I hope that you'll forgive me, and if you want to talk about it more, please talk to me after the service, because I don't want to wound you in that way. I don't believe that's the way of Jesus at all. Unfortunately, my wounding others doesn't stop there. See, I went to community college, and I was ready to wage war against those liberals. When I got to community college, man, I was ready to fight I knew that kind of the academic institution tended to be more Democrat, more liberal in thought, and I wasn't going to have any of that. And so this manifested itself in a variety of ways. I wrote a paper against illegal immigration and gave a presentation to a classroom, and I didn't care that I kind of wounded the professor. I didn't care that I wounded someone who perhaps was in that class and had gone through that experience. I gave other presentations. I wrote a paper, kind of the pinnacle of my, my attacking was when I wrote a paper justifying the use of internment camps during World War II for Japanese Americans. I was so committed to my political ideology that I was saying, here's this thing that we did and it's okay. This is why it's a good thing. But kind of the worst of it was not these papers that I wrote, but it's the people that I wounded. I once cussed out a girl right before class because she was bashing the war. I thought she was saying uh, untrue things about soldiers, and so I just kind of let her have it. That was me wounding her. There was another woman in that class who was a lesbian, and I told her that her homosexuality caused AIDS. These are the kind of things that I did. And if you're here and I have wounded someone like you, if you've been wounded by people like me, I'm sorry. I apologize. I shouldn't have done those things. 
See, because I was more interested in being right, I was, I was scared, I was afraid than I was in loving my neighbor and loving people like you. So I hope you'll forgive me, and if, uh, and if you have been wounded like, by people like me, please come talk to me today. After the service, I'd love to chat with you. See, fear leads to a flight response or a fight response, both of which wound others instead of loving them. But Paul says something good. He brings good news into this message for people like me. He says, you can have joy, rejoice, experience gladness. Well, how's, how is this, Paul? What's your deep secret? So we understand that we're not supposed to have fear because fear leads to a bad response. So what is it that we can have? What's your deep understanding, Paul? It's this. Paul knew that with God, we're safe, free, and fearless. With God, we're safe, we're free, and we're fearless. We're looking at verses 7 and 8, and really the second half of verse 6, where, where Paul says, uh, in every situation, go to prayer, present your request to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, with God, we're safe. With God, we're safe no matter our circumstances. What's Paul's solution to fear? It's prayer. That's the most uh, kind of unwise thing. Our culture would never say that. When we say, well, you're afraid, then you run away or you fight. Paul says neither of those things. He says, get on your knees. Pray to God. What is prayer? Prayer is simply talking to God. Talk to God about your fear. Talk to God about your anxiety, about your desire to lash out. Talk to God about your desire to run away. I've actually done a little experiment on myself when I've been anxious and had kind of a high heart rate. I measure my heart rate with my Fitbit. And uh, then I pray, and then I measure my heart rate again, and it has dropped, sometimes 10 to 15 points. The other day, it dropped from 113 to 50. Man, you can't get a better advertisement <laughs> for Fitbit than that. Prayer works. It calms our hearts. We can breathe. We can think a little bit more clearly as we bring our anxieties to our Savior. What does Paul say happens when we pray? He says, the peace of God will guard your hearts. Do you guys remember where Paul is? <laughs> He's imprisoned. He's literally being guarded, not by people that have his best interests in mind, but people that have it out for him. He's under lock and key. But he's saying, I have a greater guard. I have a greater sentry. This, this sentry, this warrior is standing guard outside my heart. And no fear, no anxiety will ever penetrate my heart because I have a greater God than that. I want you to think of your toughest, the, the toughest, the most baddest, the most protective warrior you know. Your mom. God is like a mama bear who will tear to shreds anyone that has our spiritual harm in mind. If you know God, he will protect you. Moms go to amazing lengths to protect their children, don't they? 
My mom got a refund from a pawn shop. That's how far she went to protect me. God protects us like a mama bear, like a mighty warrior, like a sentry guard that no one can defeat because who can stand against God? No one. God protects us, and this knowledge that he's guarding us, that he's guarding our hearts, it gives us true peace. But with God, we're not only safe, we're free. We're free. We're free indeed. Early, earlier in this book, in the book of Philippians, Paul says something to the believers. This is chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, you can flip to it there later. You can just write down 320 uh, in your uh, bulletin. But he tells the believers this. He tells the early church this. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. See, if you're a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom, in other words, you have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, that means you're a citizen of a different kingdom, of a higher kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom, of a kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's your primary kingdom. You may live in the USA. You may live in a different country, but you are primarily a citizen of God's kingdom. And you know what's so good about God's kingdom? <laughs> Is that the laws are perfectly, perfectly fair, perfectly just, perfectly true. And the ruler the king, the president of God's kingdom is God. And verse 8 describes God. God is true. God is noble. God is right. God is pure. God is lovely. God is admirable. This describes the kingdom of God. See, in God's kingdom, if you know God, you're absolutely free. You don't have to worry about an evil dictator or an evil politician coming in to ruin your freedom. No one can take your spiritual freedom from you. See, fear, anxiety, they feel good to believe, don't they? They feel good to buy in. They're kind of an addictive drug. The more fearful you are, the greater your anxiety grows, and it just kind of feeds on itself, and it debilitates you. Sometimes I've sat wondering, like, what should I preach? I'm afraid, and I don't get anywhere, so I have to stop. I have to pray. God, take away my fear. And what does God promise? He says, you know, if you pray, Paul says, if you pray, God will give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. When you get on your knees, God will give you a grace that goes beyond our simple comprehension. He will give you something that's higher, that's better. And it's rooted, it's grounded in that knowledge that you are a citizen of a different country and so you don't have to be afraid. So when you watch the news, no matter what channel, when you read a newspaper, if you still do that sort of thing, if you survey Facebook and you see all the different links, you don't have to be afraid. No matter how horrible the story, you don't have to be afraid if you know God if you have a relationship with the King of Kings, with the Lord of the universe. I want to challenge you, this election cycle, ask God, pray in those prayers. Ask God to clear your mind of fear so that you can use wisdom as you go into the voter booth, but also so that you can love those people that disagree with you, so that you no longer see them as opponents to be conquered, but you see them as individuals to be loved, to be cared for.
See, when we're set free of fear and worry, we're set free to love others, to care for others as they need to be cared for. And this is really the third response. We have fear, we have flight, and we have flourish. Sky Jatani kind of gives us this, these categories of flourishing. This means I can care about the growth. I can care about the well-being. I want all of society. I want all of culture. I want everyone to grow, to flourish, to be blessed. And see, this approach puts the needs of others first. And I don't mean a, I know what's best for you, therefore I'm going to just kind of decide what's best for you. This approach really says, I'm going to take the time to know you spend time with you, get to understand you, try to care for your needs. And this comes out of the book of Philippians. Paul actually uses an example of a young pastor named Timothy. And he's writing about Timothy. Timothy is a man who is safe and free enough in his knowledge of his relationship with God that he can put the needs of others first no matter the circumstance. Philippians 2.20 says, I have no one else like him, so Paul has no one else like Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Isn't that beautiful? Timothy is a young man who cares more for others and their needs than he cares for himself. See, the problem with a flight response, running away, or a going to battle response, fighting, is that it ultimately always puts my welfare first. I'm going to take care of me and my family. Well, the kingdom of God is bigger than that. The kingdom of God says, I'm willing to lay down my life for the welfare of others. People that I might not like or that might not like me. Instead of voting out of fear this fall, instead of voting out of anxiety, what might it look like to vote out of love for others? Perhaps you could vote a little bit more objectively. You wouldn't feel the, the kind of the, the, the desire, the, the chains to uh, vote entirely down uh, the party line. Instead, you could study each, each issue and say, I'm going to vote in a way that I know is best for my neighbor, loving them, genuinely caring for them. I love this quote from Sky. He writes, the most important thing is not what you decide inside the voting booth, but how you love your neighbors once you leave it. See, we can vote the right way our entire lives, and one day we'll stand before God and we'll give an account, but I think he'll be far more concerned with how you treat those around you than how you marked off a piece of paper. With God, we're safe, we're free, and we're fearless. Now, we're safe because God guards us, right? God, God can answer our prayers. God can listen to us. We're free because we're citizens of a higher country, of a different country. But why are we fearless? We're fearless because of a man named Jesus, Jesus the Christ. See, Jesus takes your worst fears and faces it. With Jesus, we're safe, free, and fearless. This is kind of the big idea, so you can write this down in the bottom of your bulletin. This is kind of the main point of this story. It's not just with a relationship with an ethereal God, a spiritual higher cloud up there that we can experience peace. God has revealed himself. God has come. He has taken on human flesh. In other words, God became a man. This man named Jesus. 
And Jesus walked through this life never experience, never giving in to the temptation of fear in the ways that you and I give in to it. Never feeling the need to fight each other because of fear. Never feeling the need to run away because he was scared. Jesus always obeyed God. He always did what was right. And you know what happened? Jesus was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. He was tortured. And we killed him. People killed Jesus. We were afraid of him. But three days later, there's really good news. The good news is that Jesus rose from the grave again. See, Jesus defeated death. Can you think of anything that's more scary than death? Jesus defeated death. The only thing that I can think of that's more scary is God himself. And by going through that punishment, by, by, by paying the penalty for, for our sins uh, on the cross, Jesus actually satisfied God too. He took care of every reason to be afraid so that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you know him as your Lord and Savior and he knows you, you can be confident that you don't, you're safe, you're free, you're fearless, and you'll receive eternal life through Christ Jesus. And you know the good news, the really good news, is that I get the record of Jesus. In other words, when God looks at me, he sees the perfect record of his son. He sees a fearless man. He sees a fearless woman. He sees someone who always obeyed, always did right. Because in Jesus, we're pure, we're clean, we're holy, we're fearless, Verse 8, verse 8 describes you and it describes me if you know Jesus. We're noble, we're right, we're pure, we're lovely, we're admirable, all through Christ Jesus. Now, because we are so whole, we're so complete in Christ, we can go out and we can love our neighbors. See, if it was just up to me, if you go home this evening and you don't know Christ and you try to stop biting and stop running away, are you really going to be able to love those people? Because you haven't experienced the true love of God. It's through the love of God that we can experience true and everlasting peace and then extend that love and grace to others. If you don't know Jesus yet, I invite you to come to him tonight. Confess that sin, that impurity that's not out there, but it's inside here. Say, God, I am sorry. The brokenness starts in my own heart. Forgive me. And you know what? God forgives us. I, I confessed my sins earlier tonight, and I have been washed white by Christ Jesus, by his blood. I am completely forgiven. When I stand before God one day, once I've died, those things won't be on my record because Christ Jesus will be on my record. With Jesus, we're safe, we're free, and we're fearless. Now, Jatani finishes his book by telling a story. This is how I'm going to finish my message telling you a story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early in the civil rights movement, uh, Dr. King's home in Montgomery, Alabama, was firebombed. Some people came along and, and uh, threw things at him, and his house lit on fire. And African Americans in his community uh, surrounded his house, and they began to gather weapons, and a riot began to form. And Dr. King, he came out on his deck on his porch, as the, the fire was still raging. And he told them to not go to war, but to love their neighbors, to love their enemies. A quote is, and let them know that you love them. Put down your weapons. Let them know that you love them. He said, he said this amazing thing. He stood up against the fear, 
and many white lives were saved that night. Now, Dr. King didn't just believe in freedom for African Americans. He believed in freedom for all Americans, for all peoples. He knew that segregation wounded the heart of the black man, the black woman, the black child, but it also bound the heart of the white man and the white woman and the white child. That's what fear does. Fear enslaves. Three nights before this happened, Dr. King was actually sitting. He was having coffee. He was sitting in a chair, and he was uh, praying. He was praying to God. He was talking to God, and God's presence came to him. God's presence came to him and told him, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. I will be with you. And if you know Christ Jesus, that message is still true tonight. God is with you. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be afraid. God is with you. And now you can go out and you can show genuine love and concern for others that disagree absolutely with you, that stand on the opposite end of the political aisle. I want to be like Dr. King. I want to be like Timothy. I want to show genuine concern for the needs of others. I don't want to be motivated by fear because fear produces a fight response, a flight response. But God's response is entirely different. It's seeking the welfare of others. It's flourishing. With Jesus, we're safe, free, and fearless. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your message. Thank you for your words. We pray that uh, this would be an offering to you and that it would be pleasing. And I pray for the actual offering that we're about to take, Lord, These finances are a gift from you, and we're just giving back a portion of them to you. Would we use them as a church wisely to further the kingdom of God here in Westford to make an impact on this town for you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.